You are listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. Professor Stephen Nelson from UCLA came to Amherst College and gave a talk entitled Structural Adjustment, Mapping Geography and the Visual Cultures of Blackness. This was recorded Wednesday, March 2nd at the Mead Art Museum at Amherst College. Structural Adjustment, Mapping, Geography, and the Visual Cultures of Blackness explores the work of a group of contemporary African and Afro-Atlantic artists, including Mark Bradford, Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons, Houston Conwell, Moshak Walanga, and Julie Moretu, who employ mapping and geography to address key concerns in their work. While all of these artists' strategies engage notions of site, place, and affiliation, in the meeting places of mapping and blackness, they produce work of, works of unique visual power and complexity that reshape our understanding of African ancestry, notions of diaspora, and urban spaces. And what I should say is that this, this is, you know, when, you, when we're doing work, we have, I think works is pets or children or whatever, and some stay for a really long time. Like, no, my the 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 Muskin book was my dissertation, and it stayed for a really really long time. Um, this child popped up out of nowhere in 2012, um, and started as a series of talks at Harvard University, and they've morphed into a book, and they've been fighting with me to get out um, ever since. So they're the ones who are precocious, and they're like. Uh, Mummy, we need to leave, all right? Um, so with that, I continue. Um, maps have occupied a prominent position in modern and contemporary art since at least the early 1960s. Perhaps the best known and most addressed examples are those of Jasper Johns, who during the decade used the map as a launching pad for formal, linguistic, and political inquiry. Afro-Atlantic artists also made liberal use of maps to explore newfound pride in the motherland, to articulate pan-Africanist and black nationalist ideals, and in some cases, to critique the burgeoning of the American industrial military prison complex. Here, maps are part of political, psychological, and emotional exegeses on the relationship of subjects to geography, and they attempt to recast our understanding of both. Inspired by my own past as a graphic designer who made informational graphics, and this is my only public commission on the screen, it's in the Harvard Square Tea Station in Cambridge, um, and my 2006 article, Mark Bradford's Allegorical Impulse, I'm fascinated how each artist, as a geographer, plays with a mix of mediums to create monumental, phantasmic, and chaotic spaces that problematize the authority of official maps while they remap new kinds of spaces that interrogate the relationships of groups of things, peoples, and ideologies in new and at times uncomfortable ways. For instance, in his attention to urban geography, the incorporation of the cast-off, and histories of 20th century art, Mark Bradford, as typified in Untitled 15 from 2004, investigates the coexistence of formal and informal systems, underscoring ever-changing urban dynamics, relationships played out in urban arenas, and notions of blackness. As structure, signifier, mirror, icon, and or symbol, this project explores the myriad uses of the map and the confrontations such intersections produce. Moreover, 
understanding the map not just as a formal structure for art making, but also as psychological structure, emotional ordering, and a system of establishing relationships in the world. This text investigates how artists at the crossroads of mapping and blackness produce they produce works that attempt to short circuit the map's ideological structures of authority, offering instead provocative revisions of the worlds they explore. With this understanding, today's talk includes three parts, focusing on Conwell, Moretu, and Lunga. And I hope that these sections will adequately outline the larger project's trajectory and stakes. Part one, Houston Conwell's choreographed black histories. In 1988 and 1989, Houston Conwell's new cakewalk appeared at a number of museums in the, in the United States. And on the screen you see on the left, the High Museum installation in Atlanta. And on the right, your neighbor Williams College's, not exactly neighbor, all right, um, their installation from the year after. In each appearance, a large diagram of the American South made up a dance floor. And so you can see this here this here. On the top, you can see a map of the United States with that same sort of diagram sort of put into place. Um, in a sing single or multiple walls were 48 niches, each of which contained a quote that had something to do with laughter. And you can see these right here on these. And I'll just show you detail. And these are one of the examples. The diagram that constitutes the dance floor one on which viewers could not actually dance, is quite complicated. A series of three concentric circles frame the map underneath. Four other circles highlight New Orleans, Atlanta, Louisville, and Memphis. And so you've got New Orleans, Atlanta, Louisville, Memphis. Um, the King Line connects Atlanta with Memphis. The Malcolm X Line connects New Orleans and Louisville. Um, and the cities, the cities actually have certain sort of places of importance. So, you know, for example, Atlanta is the place of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. Memphis, I mean, I'm sorry, his birth. Atlanta is the place of his birth. Memphis is the place of his death. The Malcolm Line connecting New Orleans and Louisville. New Orleans is a major entrepreneur for the entrance of Africanisms into the United States. Louisville is actually the place of the artist's birth. Conwell was born in, in Louisville. At the Cosmogram Center sits the small town of Tuscumbia, Alabama. Um, it's symbolized as New Birth and Mount of Joy. It's also the birthplace of Helen Keller, which in a longer version I go into. Um, the outer circle, which spells Cakewalk, announces the dance. There are other circles on the dance floor, Birmingham, Little Rock. Symbols derived from Congo cultures and Haitian Vodun also dot the graphic, perhaps quietly marking other important locales in African-American history. The cakewalk, in its original form, go back, in its original form was a plantation dance where slaves spoofed the movements and manners of their masters. Its entertainment value, aside from the joy of the dance itself, resided in seeing white audiences titillated by performances while remaining blithely unaware of their ridicule. By the end of the 19th century, the cakewalk had become enormously popular. In 1897, African-American vaudeville entertainers Burt Williams and George Walker brought the dance to Broadway in the show The Goldbug. 
1903, The Cakewalk was featured in the film adaptation of Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. That same year, The Cakewalk appeared in three short films released by the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, and this is one of them. Although two of these featured black couples proudly strutting their stuff, as you could see in the example. In the third, which I'm not showing today, white couples in blackface awkwardly circle about, exaggerating what they believe to be the heirs of uppity black folk. Whether, whether on the plantation or in early 20th century dance halls, the cakewalk constantly crossed racial and cultural boundaries. And it's in its late 19th and early 20th century popularity, it provided a framework through which Americans articulated their racial anxieties. Moreover, in its popularity and in its capacity to fulfill myriad agendas, the cakewalk points to the multivalent, if schizophrenic, centrality of African Americans and African American cultural mores in American culture at large at the time. Despite its appropriation, despite all of the guises in which it was danced, despite all such attempts, the cakewalk marked the ultimate survival of African and African American peoples and cultures in a virulently racist society. The cakewalk first appears in Conwell's practice in 1983. In this first installation, three concentric circles surround a pole. Four triangular constructions, each representing the same charged cities, New Orleans, Atlanta, Louisville, and Memphis, that appear in subsequent installations, hang on the gallery's walls. When describing the installation, Conwell notes that the floor is the meeting of a child's game of hopscotch superimposed on the 13th century labyrinth floor of Chartres Cathedral. Writing in 1922, William Matthews, exploring the opinions of labyrinths and noting the example of Chartres, explains, and this is a long quote, some authorities have thought that they were merely introduced as a symbol of the perplexities and intricacies which beset the Christian's path. Other considered them to typify the entangling nature of sin and any deviation from the rectilinear path of Christian duty. It has often been asserted, though on which evidence it is not clear, that the larger examples were used for the performance of miniature pilgrimages in substitution for the long and tedious journeys formerly laid out upon pensions. With this in mind, then, to walk the labyrinth, to follow its path, is tantamount from moving, moving from the plane of the profane to the realm of the sacred. The journey is a metaphor for making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem. If the labyrinth is indeed the way to ascend to the Holy Realm, it is a voyage that is not easy. Philosopher Frank Orella notes that in Chart, the passage between through the labyrinth of the world is steeped in loss, and the trip through it is fraught, mentally taxing, and emotionally draining. However, to make it to the Holy Land, to find Jerusalem, to meet the Holy Spirit, is an exercise in spiritual transformation, one that releases the traveler from the bondage of self. And it bears noting that in many of these examples you see of people describing these sort of performances on labyrinths, the pensions are doing it on their knees. And so you're on that floor. It's not like this nice carpet. You won't get a rug burn, but you're going to get bruised, like really bruised. It hurts. Um, not that I've done it myself. 
Um, by merging the game of hopscotch with his labyrinth, Conwell makes an attempt at mitigating the seriousness, pain, and loss accorded with pilgrimage. He explains, quote, I have often found that very urgent, grave, and serious matters can best be insinuated and grasped by presenting them through games or comic anecdotes. And so you have the game of hopscotch, the, the plaques that have laughter, etc. Be that as it may, Hopscotch may be child's play, yet child's play can be a source of healing and transcendence. Novelist Julio Cortazar said of the game in the context of his own novel, also titled Hopscotch, a simple chalk line on the ground and a little stone can bring a child to leap from earth to heaven, be it paradise, heaven, glory, or even happiness at game's end. The process of getting these res- getting there to make it to heaven resembles the penchery play that is the core of Chartres' labyrinth. Returning to the New Cape Walk, on top of references to Chartres and the abstracted map superimposed on the dance game labyrinth, the dance floor is also considered to be a Congo cosmogram. Long associated with movement, this ideograph is a map that guides souls from the land of the living to the land of the dead and back again. And, and just on this diagram, this is a very basic diagram of the movement, and, and it's you know, famously called by, by art historian Robert Farris Thompson, the four corners of the sun. And in here, you start at the, you start here. All right, this is the beginning of your life, the apex of your life. This is where you die. This is the nadir, or the middle of your time in the other world. And this is where you come back. And so you have this never-ending process of, of this movement between the, the, the worlds of the living and the, and the worlds of the ancestors and the dead. Um, <clears throat> following Robert Ferris Thompson, his well-known characterization of the famed ideogram, in his 1981 exhibition catalog, The Four Moments of the Sun, Conwell explains, there is a sense of journey in the African perspective, too. I am constantly gaining knowledge about it. In The Four Moments of the Sun, the Congo cosmogram used in mystic groundbreaking drawings by the Bakongo people of Central Africa. The traveler moves through the maze from points around along the diamond or the circle from birth to life to death and then finally to rebirth. It marks a common meeting ground for humanity. Conwell takes from Thompson an understanding of the cosmogram as a mapping of birth, death, and rebirth, a process that is tantamount to a Christian confirmation. Moreover, in calling the cosmogram a maze, the ideograph also shares potent analogies with the labyrinth and floor at Chartres. As Thompson has explained, the journey set forth in the cosmogram is not easy. It is one filled with sorrow and pain. In this way, the cosmogram is a repository for pathos, one seemingly belied by Conwell's linguistic term. The cosmogram, however, is not only spatial, it is also temporal. Its spirals and concentric circles, derived from patterns on shells, are visual reminders of Congo conceptions of cyclical time and spiritual persistence in the journey of life, death, and rebirth. The spiritual represents the cyclical journey of the sun. Concentric concentric circles may signify growth and change. Conwell applies such notions to his own conceptions of transcendence and to his formulation of black history in the new world. 
The spiraling of Conwell's diagram recalls not only the labyrinthine move towards the Holy Land, not only Congo conceptions of soul travel and time, but also enacts several interlocking ideas of time itself. Moreover, regarding the two axes that we talked about earlier, King and Malcolm, while they show the intersection of two different paradigms of civil rights activism, they also bring the past into the present, collapsing them on the same spatial plane. In the early 1970s, Conwell found a setting in Washington, D.C. that dovetailed beautifully with his burgeoning interests in African forms, African-American history, and ritual and contemporary art. And what you see on the screen is a picture that appeared in Jet magazine. That, this is his wedding. All right. And and the Baltimore Afro-American described the wedding as having been done in the African style. Um, anyway, at the time... Conwell noted his exposure and immersion in Washington's Yoruba community. At this point, he explains that he had seen Yoruba rituals at Howard, where he was a student, and that his wife, curator Kinshasa Holman Conwell, had taken on, in his own words, the ambiance, lifestyle, and dress typical of the Yoruba community. He then adds, we would go to naming ceremonies, all sorts of Yoruba stuff. The Conwells, as you see on the screen, were married in 1971 as in what the Baltimore paper called ceremonies in the African tradition, as I said. Perhaps most importantly, however, Conwell saw Thompson's 1974 exhibition, African Art in Motion. The first museum exhibition to include video, the event marked a watershed in the display of African art. Far from showing static objects, Thompson's video animated African art and masquerades for audiences who had never seen it live. What's more, Thompson didn't merely describe the scenes he shot. His voiceovers mimic beautifully the movement of the masks and the music that enlivens them. The art historian speaks of a dancer's, quote, coolness under drum fire, when withstanding the, quote, bombardment of multiple meters. In narrating the action of a dance from the Republic of Benin, he broadcasts, quote, man becomes leopard, leopard becomes man. And the audience, in a flash of the scholar's spirit, fully understands the transformative potential of the masquerade. Thompson also makes an unambiguous diasporic nod. Filming a masquerade in Haiti, which Thompson calls, quote, a child of Dahomey, the art historian makes an explicit, vital connection between Africa and the Afro-Atlantic, insisting that in this example, dance has both African and African-American implications. Thompson's unabashedly positive, loving, and mystical narration of African art that took its cues, at least in part, from the rhetoric of black nationalism, provided Conwell with some of the tools he sought for his own practices. And you see two of Conwell's performances from the 1970s on the screen. He did these in L.A. Um, <clears throat> In a 1979 interview, having seen Thompson and having experimented with performance and earthworks, the artist puts it quite succinctly. He says, the end of 1974 is when I got the notion that what I was doing was something that was mine. And if you see it in print, mine is in all caps. So he really means it. Um, by the end of the 1980s, these experiments would find their crescendo in the merger of the cosmogram, the cakewalk, and the cathedral, which together nod to a modern, hybridized African-American cultural history. In essence, 
with all of these references, with three different syntaxes overlaid one on top of another, what we are left with is a disorienting competition of signifying systems that resist any clear or easy reading. A geographic map meets a labyrinth, meets a Congo cosmogram, meets an invitation to a dance intended to lead the viewer to some sort of ritual sacred transformation. The names of the city sit before the viewer, but Conwell has not provided a sense of location. He has not transported us to a place. A map that situates the cosmogram in the terrain of the United States hangs overhead, but in its position above the dance floor, Conwell robs the map of its signifying ability. As such, Conwell takes the viewer to a non-place, a non-site. Like Robert Sis like Robert Smithson's 1970s spiral jetty, a work Conwell knew. The new cakewalk exists less as a map than as a system of signs and a work of language that cannot be deciphered. For language and ideographs in this context teeter between word and matter. For Smithson, quote, the names of minerals and the minerals themselves do not differ from one another. Words and rocks contain a language that follows a syntax of splits and ruptures. The same holds, I think, for the new Cape Walk. However, there's a provocative twist. True, if one looks at a work long enough, it starts to transform, and the word and its referent can separate. But in the world of the new cakewalk, the faults and fissures, the terrains of particles that we might think create voids filled with differing and dizzying systems of reference springing from indecipherable signs that signify black presences, signal a break in the normal chain of signifiers and construct a blackness that is at once participatory and emotional. At the end of the day, Conwell leaves allegorical trails of absent presences that point to African-American yesterdays and todays systematically suppressed in hegemonic structures. Two, Post-Sol Gesamtkunstwerk, Julie Moretu's abstract spectacle. I need water. In 2000, Julie Moretu completed Back to Gowandaland, consisting of ink and acrylic paint on canvas and measuring eight by 10 feet. This large work was part of the artist's move away from earlier pieces that, in her words, quote, had a diagramic map-like pictographic element to them. This particular painting, like Moretu's work in general, is multi-layered. Underneath gestural strokes and various colors are delicate, transparent ink drawings, almost like architectural renderings that depict building fragments, footsteps of various creatures, topography, and even plant life. Although the artist notes that her works are moving away from the map-like, away from the diagramic, the layer that exists under her gestural bursts retain a kind of drafting normally reserved for informational graphics, diagrams, maps, and architectural rendering. It is as if the brush has been sent out to attack the controlled drawings, succeeding in bothering and compromising the delicacy below. It would also seem as if the work's layers, instead of leaving the map behind, retain mapping as an organizing structure, as a comprehensive and complex way of systematizing her canvas. At least since the turn of the 21st century, the majority of Moretu's work has consisted of large, sometimes monumentally sized, scaled works that appear at first glance as all-encompassing aerial views. 
whatever their size or density. These work stage confrontations between drawing and painting, between the control associated with the former and the freedom so often accorded to the latter. These confrontations between mediums, between the Apollonian nature of the artist's drawing and the Dionysian possibilities of her painting, have been the subject of many conversations on the artist's work. And within these, the fu this fundamental tension in calling out the conflicts between the syntax of rendering and that of gestural paint and sometimes dramatic color has been understood as political statements confronting abstraction. Related to such, ob uh, such observations, Moretu, like Mark Bradford, is often seen as an urban geographer, one who follows closely the eruptions and erasures that are the ebb and flow of the lives of cities. The resulting canvases are, for our art historian Joan Young, quote, narratives of urban development and the built environment and their impact on an individual's experience. It is true that Moretu's canvases, whether brightly colored or muted, deal with questions surrounding not only deconstruction and construction in their dance with rhetorics of international development and its concomitant effects around the world, but they're also total artworks that bring the viewer into an imaginary utopian space, into imaginary utopian spaces that do not narrate specific events, but rather explore and hold our attention in the gap between the concrete and the abstract, between the real and the unreal. To put this in formal terms, works such as Stadia One from 2004, depicting a transparent stadium overcome by dramatic worlds of paint and color, leaves us hanging between painting and drawing, in the gap between one syntax and another. These are indecipherable, nonlinear worlds populated by competing modes of existence, worlds that perhaps mirror our globalized, seemingly placeless present, worlds that in a conversation with art historian Sarah Lewis, the artist called, quote, psychogeographies. It is Moretu's construction of the total artwork, or to be more precise, the Gesamtkunstwerk, that lay at the base of her psychogeographies. In 1849, Richard Wagner insisted, quote, the great Gesamtkunstwerk must contain all the branches of art in order, as it were, to use up, to destroy them for the benefit of attaining their common purpose. As art historian Juliet Cross suggests, Wagner imagined the Gesamtkunstwerk in the wake of the revolutions that swept across Europe in the 1840s as a utopic, all-encompassing structure that would change the art as well as their audiences. Bringing together the visual and performing arts, it was deemed capable of immersing spectators into a totalizing experience wherein the boundaries between the different worlds would be erased, the different arts would be all one. At the same time, the audience would merge with the art. In effect, public life and artwork would live as one. It's kind of a great dream, huh? It is. Um, Wagner's vision was grand, <laughs> really grand. And in 1876, it resulted in the construction of the Festspielhaus in Beirut, designed by Otto Bruckwald and intended to host the premiere of Wagner's Ring Cycle. As is evidenced by her 2010 drawing Beirut, and in published interviews, Moretu was well aware of Wagner's theater and its role as an integral element of the Gesamtkunstwerk. In Moretu's hands, the Festspielhaus is reduced to a transparent drawing, and it is obscured, nearly deconstructed, through the systems of lines that overlay it. 
Certainly a commentary on the forms of power amassed by architecture, it is also subsumed to the artist's own investigation of the Gesamtkunstwerk as a possible means for pushing and theorizing her own systems of representation. Unlike Wagner's vision, unlike his utopic gesture for a unified world of art and folk, Moretto is interested in the Gesamtkunstwerk of the 19th century as a thing to be analyzed, as a strategy to think through Wagner's ideas of the very possibility of a merger of art and human experience. In deconstructing the Festspielhaus, Moretto's work also exists as an exegesis on architecture's theatricality, both in terms of the specifics of Wagner's spectacular ring cycle, an opera which, with which she is familiar, and in terms of architecture's position as a kind of theater of idealization. Bayreuth's deconstructive gesture cuts through such notions, instead exploring the ideological and political charge of the built environment, particularly in light of 19th century nationalist and nationalistic formations. Moreover, if we understand the theater itself as a space of community, as a kind of home for the shared experiences centered, centered on the spectacle of performance, then we can see Moretto's intervention as a shattering of that illusion through the lines that cut, that deconstruct, that obscure the building itself. Wagner offered up the theater as a space of equality pro-offered by the merger of art and folk. Moretto unravels, the Moretto unravels the composer's dream, exposing architecture's grand vision as being artifice, and the representation not of the dream of equality, but as rather as a fiction that is a less than, I'm sorry, but rather as a vision that is a less than credible fiction. Moretto points to the artifice of the Festspielhaus and its role in the construction of total experience, spectacle, and nationalist ideology. At the same time, this drawing, like works such as Stadia One and Raffian Logistics, which you see on the screen, exists as a mapping of spectacle itself. Moreover, Moretto's works in bringing spectators into this new, psychologically charged world are a Gesamtkunstwerken in their own right. Instead of Wagner's homeliest community of spectators with shared experiences, Moretto's work form communion based on the unhomely, based on plurality, and based on difference. These formations are predicated on the suspicions surrounding the 19th century Gesamtkunstwerk and its monumental aspirations, and coalesces around the very contradiction inherent in Wagner's wish for a democratizing movement around art and the mass public that, in the end, as Andras Huysen notes, participates in the widespread 19th century imaginary of triumphal architecture, stable origins, and mythic groundings of the nation. Moretto's Gesamtkunstwerken display their contingencies in the gaps between mediums. They hold up spectacle, they hold up spectacles exerting their evocative force in the clash of layers. Yet leaving Beirut, which is for all intents and purposes a drawing with a concrete reference in works such as Black City from 2001, it's clear that Moretto's total artworks, her psychogeographies, the systems through which she deconstructs and constructs her canvases, are inflected by operations inherent to the formulations of post-soul blackness. In this sense, post-soul blackness isn't a mark of subjectivity, and it's not engendered, at least in my mind, by the work's title. It is, in the word of poet Kevin Young, 
quote, this tension between sacred and secular, between past and future, between degradation and redemption. Realizing degradation can be just what leads to redemption. Within this tension, black artists are inheritors to a vast array of traditions and practices, and Moretu uses these to rework a world of her own understanding. Young grounds the operations of post-soul blackness, bargaining, trading, stealing, making, marking, and storying in his understandings of funk. In his conception of the term, funk is not ancestry. It is a more generalized mo notion of the past, a psychological past that threatens to unhinge a not, so a not so comfortable present. Given Funk's groundedness in the body, given Funk's specter of sexuality and bodily detritus, it might seem odd, actually really, really weird, to invoke it as an operation in a series of canvases that seem to, at least on their surfaces, disregard the body altogether. Yet Funk, as stance, even as a set of operations, functions like the Gesamtkunstwerk. Like the total artwork, funk is a utopian gesture that strives for community, one that revels in the dissolution of boundaries and the multi-layering of meaning. It also moves towards spectacle. It moves towards the outlandish. It is indirect. It is nonlinear. Moretu's own hope that her paintings constitute, quote, a Baroque, over-the-top, epic narrative nods to Funk's predilection for storying, for imagining a spectacle that is contingent, sometimes contradictory, and making a world that is, frankly, quite fierce. Moretu's Funk parses out places. It reimagines time. The painting's layers not only erase and obscure, but they smash the past and present to such an extent that in the experience of viewing it, it is impossible to figure out which is which. It also uncovers and recovers different syntaxes. Funk is a polyglot that samples and steals and repackages the world in new ways that exhibit its disjunctures and revels in the differences produced by them. And... Like dancing to the sounds of Sun Ra's orchestra or those of Parliament Funkadelic, being immersed in Moretu's Gesundkunstwerken is not only pleasurable, but also leaves open the potential of euphoric transformation. If you get to see a Moretu walk up and just sort of get lost in it. Um, let's return to Gawandaland. Here, one can see some funky operations in play. On the campus, on the on the campus, on the can I'm tired. On the canvas, the primordial past, explored by topographic maps and transparent buildings, is caught up in dramatic and arguably joyful gestures of color and paint. In actual place, Gowandaland was the name given to the southern supercontinent that existed from around 550 to around 150 million years ago. Connected with its northern neighbor, Laurasia, the landmass provided for the relatively easy migration of life forms. Gowandaland eventually broke into pieces, forming Africa, South America, India, the Arabian Peninsula, Australia, and Antarctica. Echoing a kind of globalized movement, both with respect to life forms and land itself, Gowandaland presents a striking analogy for today's conditions of migration and globalization. Yet, not only is Back to Gowandaland an exegesis on a primordial past, it is also a study of the operations, what am I doing? A study of operations of space and memory in the work of 
none other than Robert Smithson. We're back to Smithson, who, while in the Yucatan in 1969, made two works focused on Gwandaland. The first, they're both up on the screen. The first, Earth Map of the Hypothetical Ice Cap of Gowandaland, is a drawing that in part superimposes the supercontinent over its parts and translates the primordial landmass into the experiences he's having while traveling in the region. The second, which is down in the lower left, right-hand corner, called Gowandaland Ice Cap, made of earth and limestone blocks, ceased to exist as a three-dimensional object after the artist photographed photographed the organic mass he made. Far from existing as representations of a physical place, the works demonstrate disjunctures between maps and text. In the Yucatan, this place of Mayan ruins where, for the artist, memory is at best a machination of the viewer, Gowandaland is less historical fact than it is an articulation of absence and denaturization. It also bears noting that Conwell has written actually a lot about Smithson being in the Yucatan, and he's not having it. Um, working with the past and the present, and working around the specter of Smithson, Moretu's work is less about absence and less about the impossibility of memory and less about the displacement of the traveling artist than it is about the mixing of a primordial imagined past and a global present. Like Smithson, she participates in deconstruction and denaturization, but unlike Smithson, she imagines Gondwanaland as a space of contradiction and reconstitution. It is a funky psychogeography that partakes in storying and in a play that is at once pleasurable, in the way that funk delights in play in the freeing of the mind, and political. Both of these operations are at the base of Moretu's visual practices. Three. Learning from Johannesburg, Moshekwalanga's Maps of Desire. Moshekwalanga creates geographies of space that point both to his subjectivity and to the poles of invisibility and hypervisibility. While his early collages incorporate maps and pages from atlases, his relationship to maps is ambivalent. On the one hand, he understands and, to a certain extent, accepts them as a structure that both situates place and human relationships. On the other, in the gap between what maps represent and the lived experiences of people in South Africa, he rejects them as a stable signifying entity. Having spent much of his childhood under the rule of apartheid in South Africa, Lange recalls that as a young student, quote, Another thing that motivated me in maps was the homeland systems operational in South Africa at the time. When I was looking at maps, I'd noticed that all of a sudden a place would end, although the same people would be living on this side or on that side of a straight line. It didn't make sense that whole areas of bush could be divided by a straight line or a wavy line. It struck me that the whole process of making territories is a random one. Trying to get my head around that, I started to find maps quite useless and unauthoritative, so I started working with them by reinscribing the lines. It is the failure of the map, the randomness of its boundaries, a metaphor for the arbitrary nature of rule and law that undergird the artist's 1996 untitled collage. Trading in ethnography and in the specter of race in the public sphere, Lange reimagines the human psychological geographies of Johannesburg and Pretoria. 
The panels that make up the collage combine maps, like those used in the artist's childhood, artist's childhood geography lessons, city views, photographs, including two of Langer himself, scribblings, account sheets, and newspaper clippings of stories of race relations between blacks and whites, as well as tidbits on primitive Africans. He obscures the maps. One of Pretoria, which is up here, has a statue in its center. On a map of Johannesburg, the artist scribbles out the names of places. So we have that over, over here, I'm sorry. Um, scribbles out the names of places. On the balance sheet, he writes, quote, deceptive cadences. Seemingly haphazard, the collage explores the gap between official information and lived experience. It also serves as a screen upon which the artist projects his fantasies of visibility and full belonging in the body politic. In intervening with these maps, in covering them and effacing them, in calling into question their truth value, Lange throws down a referendum on subjectivity and belonging that reveals itself in the cutting, the layering, the editing, and the suturing of incompatible objects. And in this theater of refusal splayed over the collage's surface, the artist attempts to insist upon placing a human element into a national space predicated on the invisibility of non-whites, both in the delineation of space and in the making of the nation. This move on Blanga's part finds resonance in academic discussions of South African geography and how it should deal with black people and the land in the post-hartide reconstruction of South Africa. Noting the distance between official records and the experience of South African blacks, photographer, um, photographer, geographer Rebecca Lamas explains the failure of cartographers as well as the failure of South African geographers in grasping the human dimensions of space and place. Arguing for the black repopulation of space is a primary goal of the nation's geographic research. She insists that only through learning how to see the land anew is it possible to uncover and recapture what she calls, quote, landscapes of affection, experience, and imagination. With this understanding, Lamas's goal is in finding ways to more deeply and to more fully know a place, to understand its internal logics, in uncovering what she calls the ubiquitous scent of fear, disadvantage, insecurity, and tribulation that permeate mental maps of the townscape. It is this refocusing of geographic research to include the personal, the subjective and the psychological that finds voice in Lange's collage. It is in the gap between the official and the lived, in the space between the sterile geography displayed in statistics, bills, and official maps, and that of human geographies of living and loving that gives the artist access to, real, access to realign and repopulate the land. In short, Untitled marks the return of the repressed black subject, one that makes itself known through realignment, through the manipulation of information, and the exposure of the government map is a fiction that illustrated and suppressed the presence and, by extension, the very existence of non-whites. But if Langa's collage, his rescripted map, points to the return of the repressed as a black subject engaged in becoming, it also demands of the viewer that we change the way we see. 
not unlike the Situationists, who in the 1950s lodged interventions on the maps of cities such as Paris and Amsterdam in order to counter the masterful gaze of authority and to soil the sterility of the, the official document with the messiness of human life. Lange's collage attempts not only to question belonging with the rise of the black subject, but also to highlight the heterogeneity of urban space. And I think it's fair to note that, that Moretu's work is also very closely related to the Situationist project. Shortly after completing Untitled, in 1997, Lange moved from South Africa to Amsterdam, where he began studies at the Rijksakademie. In the move, he observed... As soon as I came to the Reichs Academy, I became impotent because I was without a map, so to speak. I was in the unknown, although that was an interesting situation to be in. Yet a map remained. Along these lines, Lange's 1997 installation, Temporal Distance with a Criminal Intent, You Will Find Us in Some of the Best Places, that is a mouthful, um, parodies notions of separation and belonging. A confounding mass of thread, spools, empty bottles, and toys, the installation registers as a city that might well function. Yet in its seemingly irrational networks of strings and things, one cannot easily move through and around the work. Threads lead to dead ends. Try, try following one. Um, buildings turn into refuse. There, if there is an infrastructure at all, it is one that doesn't work. Learning from the maps of his homeland, taking his cues from the collages made in Johannesburg, temporal distance is the visualization of a threatening liminality that spatializes psychological discomfort and doesn't allow any grounding in the setting. In its accretion and accumulation, Lange has enacted a series of displacements, and instead of giving us any reference, he instead leaves us placeless. In a sense, we feel that what the artist we feel what the artist felt when trying to understand and when trying to find himself in the maps of his youth, placeless, invisible. The fragments that make up the installation are but ciphers of a fragmented global present that in, is in large part defined and structured by rootlessness, migration, and a sometimes bourgeois nomadicism. Like the collages, these works trade in geography and mapping. They're also resoundingly psychological in nature. The piling up of objects, buildup, accumulation, and collaging for Lange come out of his study with South African painter Penny Siapas, whose works such as her 1989 Wreckage Upon Wreckage directly cite the work of Sigmund Freud in their meditation of the human and psychological costs of South African apartheid. The damage and the structuring of identity and belonging that the state wrought on its citizenry is at the base of Lange's work, and it is from there that his spatializations find their evocative force. At the same time, Lange described his reception in Amsterdam as inhospitable. His map works were viewed as somehow exotic, ethnographic, and African, or I should say, African, um, feeling, feeling as if his works and his presence as an African in Amsterdam pigeonholed him in a kind, as a kind of local informant and frustrated with the anthropological understanding of his practice, he took up photography. In this realm, <clears throat> Lange considers the social costs of his unwelcoming European environment. In his 1998 portrait series, True Confessions, My Life is a Disco Queen, 
another one of my favorite titles in the world, the artist certainly minds his autobiography in much the same way as in his maps and installations, which he returns to, and his desire. Such work is attached to a larger discourse of black diasporic queer subjectivity typified by African-American artist Lyle Ashton Harris and Nigerian artist Ike Ude, whose tableaus do not take subjectivity as a given, but rather in their androgyny, in their artifice, point to identity as unstable and as arbitrary. Yet in these works, as was the case in Johannesburg, Lange's interest in mining liminal spaces and trading in decipherability underpin the self-portraits. He is without background. The pictures teeter between an amateur porn shoot and the ubiquitous selfies that are the stock of social media. I have not taken a selfie in a day. (laughs) No, for real. Um, Here, Lange is without a map. Absent a spatial referent, these pictures could be many things. Yet these photos allow Langa to lose place and to explore a rootless geography of sexuality and desire that is born of displacement and cultural difference. Geographies of desire constitute not only Langa's photographs, but also his index pieces. These collages, which are reminiscent of Jean-Michel Basquiat's works of the 1980s, bring together script, drawing, and images that brim with lists of people, places, songs, and such. Their indecipherability is not unlike untitled. Here, information is mapped, compartmentalized, and seemingly nonsensical. They also bring together subjectivity, a black diasporic consciousness, and gay camp. In his 2001 Age of Romanticism, which is on the left, Langa lists places, important people, dietary supplements, food, song lyrics, and a lot of other things. It also includes a photo up here, the photo, um, of an identified man who might well be a love interest. Langa's 2002 Flower Drum Song on the right, which takes its name from the 1961 movie starring Nancy Kwan, herself a kind of liminal figure, includes odes to Kwan, odes to the Wizard of Oz, specifically Dorothy, and we are friends of Dorothy, family members, places, and the like. Both works explore placenessness in much the same way as the maps, yet Langer has freed himself from the map's literal form, turning to and taking advantage of language and the cognitive functions accorded by mapping instead. Both the list of words and the strings that make up temporal difference spring from Langa's interest in the signifying function of language and from having read James Joyce's Ulysses, experimentation into the new meaning that arises when different styles of writing, or in the artist's case, different mediums and different kinds of lists intersect. Yet at the same time, what Langa does create are complex complex networks of affiliation that refuse any easy interpretation. If the geographer has power, if the geographer can indeed create, define, construct our understanding of a place, then the artists here take up the mantle and question and subvert the power of the maker. They map space. However, instead of rendering the world legible or readable, they create tableaus of chaos. And in the mediums that close in on and clash with one another, they attack and question the art object. In these ways, 
Conwell, Langa, and Moretu create ruptures that open up onto other views and other imaginaries. And in this indeterminate space, in these shifting works, they envelop us in worlds that leave us wanting, leaving us not knowing quite what to think, what to do, or what to say. Thank you.